All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the second day of 2018. And I do want to take this opportunity to wish you all a very happy, healthy, prosperous, and peaceful 2018. We do want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show, Bonterra Resources, RN Resources, Novo Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., and Uranium Energy Corp. We have a very busy day today, so let's get right to it. I've titled today's show, Looking into 2018, with Dr. Quentin Henning, Michael Oliver, and Chen Lin. Looking back at 2017, the hottest gold exploration stock on the planet was a sponsor to the show, namely Novo Resources. But the shares have fallen back quite a bit from a high of around $7 in U.S. money to around $3 earlier today. Was the big run-up in 2017 much ado about nothing, or is there reason to believe Dr. Henning may indeed be on to discovering the next Whitwaters Rand deposit, this one being located in northwestern Australia? Dr. Henning will update us on the potential and the challenges remaining that company's very exciting Australian gold exploration project. Well, as we enter into 2018, Michael Oliver is bullish on commodities, including precious metals, and especially on agricultural commodities. He is equally bearish, however, on the dollar, on stocks and bonds. He will explain his positions on these key markets in just a few minutes after a first commercial break. But right now, I'm really happy to tell you that my friend Chen Lin is with me. Chen has been hugely successful, especially in the biotech and energy sectors over the last few years, and I think he is ready to share a couple of his top ideas with us. So uh, thanks for joining me today, Chen. Thank you, Jay. Always good to have you with me, Chen. And uh, before we get started, I want to tell our listeners they should go to ChenPicks.com, ChenPicks.com to sign up for what is Chen buying, what is Chen selling. Uh, Chen, um, we want to get right into a couple of your top picks because there's a couple of them really starting to take off now. And I'm wondering, is there still a lot of upside? And and the first one I want to ask you about is Sorrento Therapeutics, traded in, uh, in on the NASDAQ SRNE. I saw it at about 450. Actually, it's 458 right now as I look at the screen. 79.3 million shares outstanding given new market cap, I guess it would be around 360 million U.S. dollars now. So uh, is talk to us a little bit about it. This is a company that's developing a, something they're really highlighting called CAR-T therapies. You know, the stock was selling around $2, 250 or so when you really pounded the table for it. It's, it's risen dramatically since then. But talk to us about CAR-T therapies. What is the upside from here, Chen, for this company? 
Yes, hi, Jay. Uh, yeah, the CAR T therapy is something just came out. They got the approval, two approvals uh, last year, and uh, the kite was taken over to a $12 billion. It's also in kite T space. And uh, yes, the last year there's an amazing new discovery. Okay, so what would it call is the BCMA as another new CAR T that can potentially, potentially, I just say potentially can cure mm-hmm. multiple myeloma as we know it, right? So basically, Selgin and then Bluebird, they together, they do a test, test on 18 patients, and then 10 are cure. It's oh. amazing, right? 10 out of mm-hmm. 18 are just cure. So, so now, now multiple myeloma becomes the hottest area in the whole space, and then Sorrento is the key of that, day because they have an antibody, it's an antibody company. They have both CD, CBMA and the CD38, which is even bigger. A target. So uh, they are already licensed to a division of Celgene called Celerity, and then they, they will try to bring that into a clinical trial this year. Okay, so uh, I've been talking to a lot of people in the industry. Uh, people look at Sorrento, you know, they, they, they in, in, some in have suspicions, some in disbelief. So basically, is if anything of what they said is true, the company should worth billions of dollars, not hundreds of millions. So, but they already have license. You know, the, the, the division of Celgene Cellularity spin-off of Celgene already licensed their technology, so they are proof of their technology. So this mm. year is going to be a spectacular. I mean, if possible, it will be a spectacular year mm-hmm. for, for Sorrento. And they will go through. They, in February, the they, they painkiller pen will get FDA decision, and then hopefully, in a, after a few months, they will get a major license deal to uh, uh, and first clinical trial of their multiple myeloma CAR T, and then potentially uh, afterwards will be could be an IPO in Hong Kong. Right, Hong Kong just recently this year just opened up a biotech company to uh, to to be listed without any revenue. Used to be company without revenue cannot be listed. Now oh. this year is the first change, and then you saw what what their recent. Uh, private placement takers, five Hong Kong companies. So th- those are very, very strong indications that they could potentially uh, listen in Hong Kong. You know, probably has a much, much higher price, assuming they they meet you know their milestone. So <laughs> this company from now on they can grow much, much. You know, they have a much a lot of room. You know, probably could go to double digit. But today, right now, it's up, up about eighteen uh, percent. It's more than double since, as you said, since I was pounding the table. So it's, mm-hmm. it's been for me, uh, you know, uh, basically there's two companies. Uh, you know, last year was a spectacular year with many, quite a, I have a couple of, actually more than tenfolded. But at the, the end of the year, uh, there are uh, two companies actually just taking off. One is Sorrento, one is Valar. Actually, uh, just before I go to Valar, I just mentioned on my website, there's Outlook of 2018, which I wrote. A couple of weeks ago, it, I already put it on the website. People can go there and download that. Uh, Good. That outlook and that discuss those uh, those stocks. Uh, for Valara, is uh, another very exciting thing, uh, very exciting discovery uh, in Turkey. Natural gas, where gas is about seven dollar. Uh, mm. it, it has uh, did four tests. Uh, one, two, three was very strong. The fourth test, which is a little bit higher. Um, uh, uh, location and that the results wasn't as good as the previous three. I don't think it's a very significant because uh, 
the higher it is, the less pressure it is. Uh, when they frack, uh, you know, you can see that the gap can be a little bit bigger than than others. So right, so 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 using the same sand, you know, doing fracking, the same sand may not hold as well as others. But it does, you know, they probably need to fine tune the fracking technique going forward. Uh, but the the concept already proven, and company will planning is to you know, in, um, to do institutional roadshow very soon. I expect in a week or two. And then afterwards, hopefully a, a couple of weeks afterwards, they will have a big reserve report. So those are the uh, immediate catalysts. But before the year, uh, most people buying, actually a lot of buying are from individual investors. The instit- institutions, now after New Year, they come take a look. So you know, mm-hmm. there could be a lot of buying from now on. So we'll see. And the volume has been dropped significantly. So in consolidation, I hope it will go to new highs in the new year. All right. Because uh, again, these are two that you've just very recently recommended, the ones you just talked about, Sorrento. I mean, it was just a few weeks ago, it seems, maybe a month or a couple of months ago, maybe now, two to two and a half dollars. It's now trading at 450 or 460, somewhere in that range. And then with Valera, it was just even more recently at 75 cents, I saw back in November. It's now at, uh, and when we're talking Canadian dollars there, it's now about $5 Canadian, I believe. So do you, yeah. so you see some, I mean, with Sorrento, obviously, uh, getting back to Sorrento, the painkiller, that could be a catalyst in the middle of the year sometime, Chen, that could drive this stock higher? No, in February. Uh, the FDA decision is before the end of February. So that oh. itself can worth a few hundred million. So it means the stock can double on that news. And then will be a big. Uh, they will be the first clinical trial, you know, of their you know CAR T therapy. CAR T, yeah, uh, yeah. Wow. Potentially find another partner, major partner, to contribute hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Recently, Johnson Johnson just licensed uh, the BCMA from one of their competitors in China, mm-hmm. uh, and they well, Johnson Johnson paid four hundred million, four hundred million just for down payment plus milestone plus royalty. The whole. The whole deal was billions of dollars, and then their their competitor actually listed in Hong Kong. The market cap is about four billion. So you can see that there's a huge gap uh, yeah. between Sorrento uh, here and then Sorrento can can be right by the end of All this right. year. So we'll see. Well, it's very exciting, Chen. And uh, again, folks, uh, it's ChenPicks.com. ChenPicks.com. Go there. Uh, you've got something there for people. Again, Chen, what was that that you said you yeah, have there? Yeah, it's outlook of this year. I, I talk about both uh, you know, Sorrento, uh, Valara, and a few other stocks, including Neptune. I don't, I'm not sure we have time. Yeah, this, uh, get 30 seconds, Chen. Uh, uh, 30 and, seconds. Uh, just, just talk about Neptune. Traded uh, NEPT as a symbol, 78.6 million shares, $2.42, I think. That's up, too. That's up also very big in the last few weeks, I believe. Yeah, exactly. I was telling subscribers to buy, buy, buy. When it was $1, it's more than double. Uh, I've been holding it for six, seven years. Uh, Recently, they changed their business model, uh, steered by my friend George Haywood. That's the same guy who turned around Sarepta, if you notice that. Mm -hmm. We made about 40 baggers uh, two years ago on that company. He basically tried to turn around Neptune, and then the company, with all his intellectual, with all the technology, they're going to steer away towards marijuana. Okay, so they have a big lead in all the other Canadian companies who are trying to process marijuana oil. And it's very, uh, it takes, takes a while to describe that, but all the companies just with the name marijuana go to the, 
you know, jump a lot, <laughs> yeah. but this is a real company, real business. Yeah, very good. All right. Well, thank you very much, Chen, for being with us. Again, folks, it's ChenPicks.com. Go there to uh, see what my friend Chen Lin has up his sleeve. He's really done very well for his subscribers and for uh, his own portfolio. So, uh, you know, consider subscribing to Chen's letter. Thanks so much for being with us again, Chen. It's always a pleasure having you. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to commercial break now, but don't go away. Michael Oliver will, will be with us to tell us what his momentum work is telling him about what we should be looking forward to in 2018 in the major markets. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael Oliver. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over two. $200 million. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have Michael Oliver with me today to take a look at what might be coming our way in 2018. Thank you for, thank you for joining me today, Michael. Oh, good to be back. You know, uh, it's Michael. It's OliverMSA.com, folks. OliverMSA.com. Well, Michael, you you obviously feel we are on the precipice of some very big changes in the markets as we move into this new year. Because on December 31st, you stated the following to your subscribers, and I quote: "MSA suggests that the 2018 gold report sent out in, on December 18th, and this report on equities." as well as three other 2018 reports to be issued in the next 48 hours, might be best printed and filed by our subscribers. These are big number reports with large implications. Well, for the sake of time, I'm going to just simply turn you loose and let you talk about Mm -hmm. the, the major markets that you talked about, that you sent out these special reports to, gold, stocks, foreign exchange, commodities, and government debt. Go ahead. Well, I think the the big moves this year uh, in terms of impact are going to be, I think you take the stock market and put it, put it to the side. I think it's, an, it's relatively small compared to the debt markets and the foreign exchange markets. And I, I argue the foreign exchange markets got into gear last May when uh-huh. the dollar broke down, and that's going to continue probably for a couple of years. I think we're our third massive down wave in the dollar commencing from the mid from the 1984 peak i think we started our third wave down and it'll probably last a couple of years and i'm not sure how deep it's going to go but it's not going to it's not going to be trivial now that's that's one factor that's moving uh, the debt markets and i'm speaking now not of high yield or junk bonds i'm talking about us german japanese bonds 
they're on the precipice, technically speaking, with our momentum work, a long-term momentum work, not what's going to happen the next three weeks, uh-huh. uh, of a major breakdown, meaning a rise in yields, regardless of the intentions or the policy uh, goals of uh, Draghi or the BOJ or the Federal Reserve. Um, that will be sparked in part. It's hard to say which is going to lead which, but I, I probably the commodity explosion that I think we're about to have will shake people, and it will shake the bond markets. and will certainly uh, take away one of the lines of defense used by the central banks to continue their policies. Namely, inflation will be back. Uh, I think the grains have the greatest potential for a rapid, large double-digit percent gain this year. Uh, other markets like natural gas, which has not been doing much, has been very quiet all last year, I think it has the potential to go up at least 50% rapidly. Now, that when you look at a chart and you're talking about a commodity that's $3 going to 450 well, so what? You know, historically, that's, not a, that's a 50% move. Yeah. Um, the um, uranium, uh, I think uranium and uranium stocks could take off. Um, I think gold is doing quite well. It's just, just short of 1320 Right now, you get much over 1350 and I think they're going to light the thing up. Uh, silver. Silver has been a relative... Uh, shy puppy to gold lately, but I think it's going to come to life more so than gold. All it has to do is, well, let me put it this way. December made a low and made a high and closed on the high. If you take December's price range in silver and add even less that, uh, less than that amount to where we are now, you're going to blow silver out through a triple top on an annual momentum chart, which is a very explosive breakout. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that levels around 1850 where the breakout occurs. But I see a lot of very big structures pending. Markets are moving toward them, and they're not particularly visible to a price chart analyst. Mm-hmm. When you quickly glance at any given chart of these various markets I'm talking about, there's nothing that you see that looks dangerous or positive. We're not near anything. But when you mm-hmm. look at the momentum charts, they're they're huffing and puffing at starting gates. And uh, again, forget the stock market. It's not an instigator. It's going to be a follower. So I think I would focus on the bond markets, the three that I mentioned, and our subscribers are provided with specific numbers to look at, and the numbers are very close. Um, I'd look at the grains, because I think mm-hmm. food commodities could really uh, gain headlines this year. Uh, you have to recall the last two years, they've been uh, actually more than that, three or four years, they've been just laying on their backs at low levels. Right. Theoretical, I call it theoretical zero. A commodity is not going to go to zero. Okay, that doesn't happen. So when a market, a commodity market drops and goes dead quiet at a given level for enough time, you have to assume that that's effectively it's theoretical zero. If you look at a corn, wheat, or soybean chart, that's what you've had for about three or four years, and I think they're ready to come to life. And uh, right. the, the, fir- the first up move could be of the quality of thirty to forty percent rapidly. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah, I know the, the commodities. You, you've been yeah, you've been talking about the commodities uh, and especially the soft commodities as your favorite uh, mm-hmm. subsector section of of the commodity sector, and and one of the ways you like to play that is MU, the the ETF MU, which I guess is a, a combination of of, of uh, implements of farm machinery and things like that in there too. And fertilizer companies. So the MU is actually we, we put out a buy signal in January at the same time we said uh, buy the emerging markets. And Moo has easily matched the S&P, but the EEM has almost doubled, the emerging market ETF almost doubled what the S&P did last year, mm. and yet nobody's cheering it. 
yeah. they're all cheering the S and P. But the, the real gainers were the commodity-related uh, symbols. Now, not the, not the ETFs that are directly tied to commodities. Those have not performed well because they're they're waiting on the commodity move itself. Yeah. But, but the move is comprised of industrial companies that service the agricultural industry, whether they make equipment or uh, chemicals or whatever. I think things like Monsanto and Mosaic and, and so forth and Potash. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that move has done very well. And I think particularly the fertilizer stocks, and if you go back, I don't know, what was it, about 10 years ago, that was a hot, hot area to be in. I mean, yeah. it was the talk, the talk of Wall Street. Uh, those stocks are coming up off the floor now. And they've got a lot of room to go, and I think they will. And I think they will definitely uh, move with the grains. When the grains start, those investors are going to turn their heads and start looking at the fertilizer companies again. As yeah, that's as very, that may seem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Well, there's a stock that I cover in my newsletter called Ariane Phosphate uh, that has a project that is just a world-class project that nobody's paying attention to, and it's one that I, uh, I really think people ought to be paying attention to, especially given your views on the soft commodities. Well, uh, Michael, I noticed that uh, I think it was Barron's last weekend started talking about inflation. And, of course, most people talk about inflation not in terms of Austrian economics, and you and I would agree mm-hmm. there's been plenty of inflation. It's gone into the bond markets and the stock markets. But now, indeed, uh, there seems to be growing concern among the establishment that we're heading into some sort of what the government calls inflation. That would be... Uh, the cost of living and, and the, the, you know, the items that go into that. So commodities, food, and so on and so forth. Yeah, this is a real big concern, I think, going forward this year, Michael. If we start seeing major mm-hmm. amounts of inflation, what's the Fed to do? I mean, it, well, it, 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 it is... It because is, uh, they have to raise rates, then they, their excuse for not raising aggressively uh, is gone. Plus, the main thing is not the Fed, I think, so much as it's Draghi and the BOJ. Uh-huh. Uh, because they've been the most egregious central banks in the world. The Fed has been less, uh, has been aggressive as, as it's ever been. There's no question about that. But compared to the ECB and the BOJ, uh, the Fed is almost pale in its amount of aggressiveness and intervention compared to those two. And if Draghi gets faced with uh, 2 and 3 and 4% inflation, all of a sudden, uh, you know, smacking them in the face with food prices and so forth, uh, he's, he's out of excuses. Um, to continue yeah. the policy that he's maintained, because that's one of the, his, his rails that he's used to rely on, to say, well, we, we have to stimulate inflation. And, well, you got it. Now, once you get yeah. it, what are you going to do? Uh, then the BOJ is going to be faced with that, too. And, of course, they're a major owner of not only the, the bond market over there, but the stock market. Yep. So it's, it, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens when Mother Nature comes into play here. I'm yep. talking about the forces of markets uh, overturning policies that have been stretched too long and too far by central banks. And right. I think the commodities, the food price commodities especially, are going to upset the apple cart. Also, I was looking at the other day on the news, of course, the situation in Iran. One of, one of the stories is that, well, it's food prices and stuff like that. Well, what happens globally when food prices really start to go up mm-hmm. to unstable countries like that, particularly an oil producer? Right. Uh, it, it'll, it'll make the headlines interesting as well. Um, yep. So these are these are big events, and they're going to have a lot of wave effects, not just in markets, but politically and so forth. So it's going to be yeah. a fun year. Yeah, hostility uh, in that part of the world, uh, in the Gulf over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the Straits of Hormuz or whatever it's called there. I forget the name. 
you know, some energy supply coming off the market. And that, of course, also impacts fertilizer prices, too. So, yes, I, I think it is. You know, I, I just have to recall with a minute left or so, you talked about the Judas goat last year, the the idea that interest rates were going up um, because, you know, everything was really good, supposedly. You know, the economy was getting stronger and everything. And so, yeah, interest rates were going up, but for all of the good reasons. But now if we start to get uh, the bad reasons, uh, namely the cost of, you know, cost of everything, uh, boy, that's not going to be very good. I think it's uh, – let, let me ask you, Michael, in terms of uh, the gold price then, what – you say around three forty or so is what you're looking for to, well, to 13, spring it loose. Thirteen fifty is uh, right, thirteen fifty. Thirteen fifty yeah. is a level that's obvious on price charts. Yeah. And I think that there's a certain point in trend change when you can legitimately start to look at price action for trend change signals. Normally, momentum will break out well ahead of any price chart breakout. But when mm-hmm. you look at a price chart of gold going back three, four, five years, you'll see basing action with a line across most of the highs, monthly or weekly price chart, uh, going back to 2013, uh-huh. such that if you get up around 1350 again and close a week or a month up there, you break it out of a big price base. Now, yeah. if that's $200 plus above where momentum already broke out in mm-hmm. February of 2016 at a price of 1140 um, mm-hmm. But still, it's, I think it's a legitimate indicator because momentum is already stronger than price still. Therefore, if price breaks out, I tend to trust the price breakout. Uh, and I think that's when much, much of the public is going to finally wake up and say, well, this really is going up. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's debatable among the public uh, right. whether it is or isn't. But I think that level will turn the tide and send Okay. All right. It won't be just the momentum people uh, saying buy gold, but the the general public, and then we could really see something exciting. Well, it seems to be shaping up as a very interesting year, Michael. I want to thank you very much for passing along your your insights. Always always a pleasure to have you with me, and I mean, because you're just right so often. I mean, if you were 50-50 flip a coin type of guy, I would say, well, you know, Oliver, maybe, yeah, well, okay, but no. You, you've been so right so much of the time, and I want to thank you for sharing your time with us. Uh, and we'll look to do it again next week if you're available. Thank you, sure. Michael. Thanks, Jay. Talk to you later. All right. Today. Happy New Year to you. Well, folks, uh, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because I'm going to have Dr. Quentin Henning with me to talk about what he still believes is, uh, well, I believe is still the most exciting gold exploration story on the planet noble resources their caratha project in northwestern australia so don't go away we'll be right back with dr quentin henning noble resources corp trades on the otcqx under the symbol nsrpf and on the tsx venture exchange under nvo Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Bonterra Resources, a Canadian exploration company, is aggressively expanding its high-grade Gladiator gold deposit in Quebec, Canada. In 2017, Bonterra raised $40 million and attracted strategic investors Eric Sprott, Kinross, Kirkland Lake Gold, and New York-based Vanek Gold Fund. 
Bonterra is focused on updating its 43-101 resource model in 2018 and will incorporate up to an additional 100,000-plus meters of drilling where the dimensions of the Gladiator Gold Deposit has been expanded to date nearly 500%. Bonterra trades in Canada under the symbol BTR and in the U.S. under BONXF. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm happy to have Dr. Quentin Henning on my show once again. Dr. Henning is the chairman and president of Novo Resources. Novo Resources has been a sponsor to this show. Novo has been a recommendation in my newsletter since August 9, 2013. At that time, the company was selling at $0.80 in U.S. money. The shares started out this year at $0.59 in U.S. money, so it wasn't looking like one of my better calls until the stock caught fire in July. On news of a massive field of gold nuggets hosted in conglomerate rocks, similar to but seemingly much more significant than the gold deposit being developed by Novo at Beaton's Creek, some 350 kilometers east of this new discovery. At the start of the year, Novo was my largest personal holding, so needless to say, when the stock exploded to a high of $7 in U.S. funds, it became by far the most dominant asset in my portfolio. At its height, it accounted for some 67% of my portfolio. Since then, a decline in the shares of Novo to around $2.60 in U.S. money, and a partial sale has trimmed Novo back to just 20% of my portfolio, but it's still considerably my largest holding. So the question in my mind, as well as on the minds of many investors who have learned about Novo this year is whether or not the share price was much ado about nothing or whether Dr. Henning's geological theories about how gold was formed in the Great Whitwatersrand deposit of South Africa, which was in fact what brought him to northwestern Australia, may still be valid. In other words, given the volatility of the share price for Novo this year, what I would like to accomplish with my discussion with Dr. Henning today is to ask him to put this story into perspective based on what has been learned so far with exploration work carried out on the company's 50% joint venture Purdy's Reward Project. Welcome, Dr. Henning, and thanks for joining me again today. Thank you, Jay. I'd really like to focus uh, on your press release of December 21st that the market didn't seem to take to too kindly. For uh, quite a few years, you have been searching for another Witwatersrand-like deposit, which took you to northwestern Australia. You came up with a unique view that the Witwatersrand was formed by a precipitation event approximately 2.7 billion years ago or so, as oxygen was first being formed on planet Earth by way of photosynthesis. As I recall, what took you to northwestern Australia were at least two conditions. One was that the rocks needed to be of that age, around 2.7 billion years, and you also needed to uh, find a very shallow, low-energy marine environment. Uh, do I have that right? 
Uh, yes, those are a couple of, of the more important aspects. Uh, there's a few more, but uh, that's a good start. Okay. So at this stage of Noble's exploration efforts, what are your thoughts in terms of your hypothesis regarding the potential for finding something akin to the Great Wetwaters Rand deposit in northwestern Australia? Are you encouraged or discouraged with the prospects of success based on what you have learned thus far? Uh, sure, Jay. That's actually a, a very good question, very timely. Um, we're, we're learning a lot. We've uh, tried to convey to the market an accurate picture of what we see, what we are, what we're experiencing in the field, and, and give people a you know a rep- representative indication of where this thing might head. Okay, so uh, we have to be forthright about things. Uh, I guess where I would start is by saying that when you go looking for something and you think you're going to find it exactly the same. Uh, in geology, at least, it, it seldom proves to be true. In other words, you go looking for something, and what you find is is somewhat different. Uh, let me give people a little background on the Witwatersrand and, and the deposits there. There's really two types of gold ore in the Witwatersrand Basin. Uh, one of the, the types, and the one that most people you know hear about or know about, are the conglomerate-hosted gold deposits. All right? These are beds of conglomerate, anywhere from, say, a few tens of centimeters up to a meter or two thick. They are laterally continuous. They, they uh, continue for strike lengths of several kilometers in many cases, both uh, laterally and down dip into the basin. Uh, the, the beds of conglomerate are dominated by quartz pebbles. These are uh, basically pebbles that are almost universally comprised of quartz, like quartz, vein quartz, chert, things like this. They also have a component of finely rounded buck, uh, what we call buckshot pyrite, which are little round gran- granules of pyrite, probably just in origin, and then they have gold. Uh, the gold in the Vetwatersrand conglomerates is commonly reasonably fine-grained. It's not necessarily fine in, in terms of micron scale, but it, it's on the order of, we'll call it you know, 50 to 100 micron, say, average grain size. Uh, in some places, it gets coarser than that. Some places, it gets up to, to millimeter size. But, uh, you know, it's fairly fine grain, and as such, uh, it's it's fairly easy to sample the material. You can grab a sample of uh, conglomerate and assay and determine the grade. Uh, you know, I've assayed many samples from the Witwaters, and I even assayed the Discovery Outcrop, which is in Johannesburg. Got a, an average grade of 15 grams per ton off of that outcrop. It's about a half a meter thick. Okay, uh, there's a second type of gold ore in the Witwatersrand Basin. It's usually down dip or, or further out into the basin from the conglomerate style. That's the carbon leader type ore. The carbon leader is a thin seam, uh, usually no more than a few millimeters thick, even sometimes as, as, as thin as less than a millimeter, believe it or not. Uh, and it's basically a small seam of carbon uh, in, in composition. It's actually referred to as carriage. And uh, I believe that, that that's a fossil remnant of a bacterial mat, a cyanobacterial mat, and that was responsible for precipitating the gold uh, out of seawater. And without going into great detail about that, I'll, I'll leave leave it at that. So the, the model is, let's go find another Witwatersrand. Uh, I believe that the age of the Vits is important. And, you know, it formed a very specific time period in Earth's history uh, when photosynthesis was developing in a big way. There was probably initial photosynthetic organisms dating back to, to very early Earth history, 3.6 billion years or so. But it was really this uh, this event around, say, 2.9 billion that uh, that locked it in. So the carbon leader uh, is really the first big gold event. Okay, so where else can we look for this on Earth? Well, there's not too much crust around this planet that's of that age. Uh, the, the Pilbara Creton in Australia is, is certainly the biggest and, and best example of crust that's available to explore. 
Uh, there's a bit in India. There's a bit in Brazil. There's little scraps and pieces uh, in other places around the globe. But the Pilbara Craton, where we've been exploring for about six or seven years now, is is really the the focus of our effort. Uh, all right, so we we go to Australia. We we worked in the East Pilbara for you know nearly six years now, uh, focused on Beaton's Creek and a few places around Marble Bar. We found conglomerates with gold that are similar to those in the Vits, but they're they're big bouldery conglomerates. They're not pebbles or boulder, but they are quartz uh, dominant. Okay, they they have that in common. The pyrite is is also in common. We find the trital pyrite in our conglomerates of Beaton's Creek and so forth, and and the gold is very similar in nature. It, there is gold that's on the order of millimeters in size. Uh, there's also a component of gold at Beaton's Creek that's fine grain. All right, so so we we thought, felt okay. Well, let's let's see if we can uh, come up with something more. We've kept our eye on the situation in the Pilbara for a long time. Around a year ago, actually more than a year ago, uh, got rumor that there was gold being found in the West Pilbara. It was in an area where there were no conglomerates mapped. In fact, uh, the area had been mapped as basalt. Uh, basalt is a lava, of course. So this is a starkly different environment than, than what we were looking for or what, what we anticipated. Nonetheless, people were finding large volumes of gold nuggets with metal detectors. Uh, these are pro- local prospectors from the Carrarthur area. All right, so we, we quickly shifted gears and to put things into perspective, that was uh, a little over nine months ago. Okay, so we, we aggressively staked ground. We, we did other land deals to uh, kind of tie up uh, and consolidate uh, an area to explore. The area we, we refer to as Purdy's Reward is one prospect, but the Comet Well uh, side of it, which is uh, immediately adjacent, is the rest of the, the subcropping or outcropping conglomerates that we have. All right, so I would say we completed our land acquisition mode around the end of August. Uh, and then we, we started to explore. We came in very aggressively looking at these conglomerates as though they might be more like Beaton's Creek. You know, uh, we had indications it was a fine grain gold component based on uh, an initial sample we collected in August, or excuse me, in July and then assayed in August and announced to the market, I believe it was August 8th. Uh, we had, you know, some indications there was a fine grain disseminated gold component. Uh, we were pretty good about uh, how we could advance this. Uh, we devised a, pl- a strategy to do core drilling and scout drilling uh, and then do large diameter drilling to capture bulk samples. We, you know, we have to get bulk samples because of the course goal. Uh, and then we also had a trenching component. Uh, we we recognized that this was a different piece. This was a coarse gold system, meaning the gold was on the scale of millimeters or greater, even in centimeters in places. So it, it's a, a different beast. Uh, the conglomerate's quite a bit different. The, the class in the conglomerate actually uh, are mostly mafic igneous rocks, uh, not quartz, you know, pebbles and co- cobbles and whatnot. So it's starkly different than than the Witwatersrand in that respect. All right, but but the way we viewed this was uh, after doing quite a bit of geology, once we could get in and dig up some trenches and actually see the rocks close up, we, we developed a model around uh, late October, early November, that we were in a, in a nearshore environment, but a high energy one. It was clear that uh, the gold that we were seeing was rounded. It was, uh, you know, the class were uh, large, angular in places. It was not uh, a distal, we'll call it, you know, for, far out in the basin. This was a, a nearshore environment, fairly high energy. 
Uh, we, we conveyed that to the market. But what we did not recognize until just recently was that the fine grain gold component that we, we thought was there, this disseminated fine grain gold component, uh, is proving to be localized. It's, it's basically a fine grain halo of remobilized gold immediately around the nuggets in the conglomerates themselves. Uh, so what that means is in order to sample this uh, and get a meaningful you know, representation of, of uh, the gold content of the rock, we have to take very large samples. Uh, we are currently stepping back and looking at this, uh, looking at how we're going to do this. Uh, we have a three-ton sample in right now to, to a metallurgical laboratory in Australia to do some what we call size by analysis. These are uh, looking at the gold distribution, the, gold, uh, the grain size of the gold, and so forth. And based on that work, we, we hope to get a better picture of what is an appropriate sample size, an appropriate large sample size for uh, getting an assay out of this rock. Now, we did collect quite a few bulk samples in the past couple of months. Uh, we put some of those out in the December uh, 21st news release. Uh, you'll see that the, there were two samples, one graded, I believe, a little over 15 grams and one graded a little over 17 grams. It's a very good start. That armor is, in many respects, it's a what, what, I, what I refer to as a transgressive lag, or geologists would refer to. It's, it's basically a, a horizon along which heavy minerals, including gold, were concentrated. And in that respect, it is like the Vidwagrashan. But again, the geology of it, the class, and, and many other aspects, you know, the gold size in particular, are quite different. All right, but we did get some good assays. Uh, we put those out in, in front of the market, but we also put out some drill holes. Uh, these are diamond drill holes. They were intended to be scout drill holes. Uh, we did go ahead and assay them because of our handicap with the large diameter drilling, and we we found that the drill holes basically did not hit a gold component. All right, so uh, there's nothing I can do about it. I wish I could change geology. That's uh, <laughs> the, way, the way it works, you know. Um, I have Tell it like it is. The the gold uh, in those drills, there was you know anomalous gold, and it corresponds mm-hmm. and to the the horizons. But to put it in perspective, uh, at Beaton's Creek, when we hit, let's say we were drilling our conglomerates, and one of the holes happens to hit you know a, a boulder dominant part of the section. In other words, it doesn't hit a lot of matrix. Well, we still see an appreciable amount of gold, maybe half gram or something, you know. Uh, in this case, at, at Purdy's, um, no, it's not doing that. It's, uh, you have to get in there and muscle out a large sample before you can determine the grade. The gold is truly in nugget form, uh, and it has a very, very fine, limited amount of fine grain gold immediately around the vicinity of the nuggets. Well, what do we do? Okay, some people are, are throwing up their hands and saying, ah, no, well, you know, they're hopeless. They're never going to solve uh, but I would urge people to remember, we uh, we did a placement back in September with Kirkland Lake. They've seen the property. They know some of these issues, okay? And they put $56 million in in a very early stage. That money is intended to go and solve some of the issues we have here. If people don't appreciate that, I would urge them to sit for a second and think. Kirkland was willing to stump up $56 million knowing that we had some of these issues. And more importantly, they said, you know what, let's make sure Novo has the cash they need to, to overcome this, to meet these challenges. I'm very grateful for that. We end the year with about $70 million Canadian in the bank. We have plenty of money to advance this project. We are not throwing up our hands. We think it is a very large, very solid gold project. Uh, you do not just see localized gold. Uh, we see gold scattered along eight kilometers at Purdy's. We see gold of similar 
type in many other locations around the This is not a one-off uh, freak of nature. This seems to be a real strong gold system. Uh, it is different than the Bitrogers ran, but my view is that we are in an environment that is simply not preserved in the bits. You do not have this type of rock preserved in the Bitrogers basin. Well, what does that mean? Maybe, maybe further out into the, the um, Fortescue basin where we're exploring, Maybe this thing evolves down depth into a Vitrogen type deposit. That's certainly something we're going to look at in 2018. We are also going to look at how we're going to sample and get meaningful data out of this coarse gold environment that we are in at surface here. All right. So we are looking at uh, appropriate size of sample, uh, how we're going to process bulk samples, uh, a lot of dis- different aspects of the, the uh, work we need to do to move this project forward. Uh, we are not throwing up our hands. We think we have a very good discovery here, and we are going to, to apply the money and the, the uh, you know really the gift that we've been given to do this hard work. Good. Um, with regard to the carbon leaders, uh, do you- you see that as something likely to uh, to be found as as you continue uh, exploring and, and down dip and into the basin. I noticed that you you had um, you, you did a couple of step outs. I think 300 meters from where the samples were taken down deeper in the basin. Uh, have you found anything there that might be encouraging with regard to? I think you. Uh, mentioned it could be an evolving system. Correct. So, so let's know. let's talk about that for a. <clears throat> Okay, uh, the Vidvadershin Basin, when they started mining gold in the Vits, they were focused on the conglomerate ores. They didn't even know about the carbon leader until they mined down dip. Okay, they were in the higher energy environment. Not high energy like we have at Perarthur, but they were still in the higher energy environment when they first started mining at Johannesburg. It took them years before they, they got into the conglomerates and appreciated the, uh, excuse me, into the carbon leader and appreciated it for what it was, that it was a, a unique style of ore. All right. Anyway, let's go back to Perarthur now. Okay. We, we are in a nearshore environment. We can tell that. Hands down, geologically, no question. But we have a huge basin. It's, tens of thousands of square kilometers in size. We have a land position roughly 10,000 square kilometers in the Carartha area. All right, uh, how far down into the basin this thing might evolve, we don't know. It, it could be a, a kilometer down, it could be five kilometers down, we don't know. But here's what we see right now. We see in, in the three holes that we drilled on the south side of the, the Purdy's area an increase in quartz content. We see an increase in what we call buckshot pyrite. Those are both very Vitvadershain-like features. Do we see carbon leader? No, we don't yet. If there is carbon leader, my hunch is it's further out into the base. Here's another thing we see. Uh, a lot of the gold we have at Purdy's Simply, it has a chemical characteristic that simply cannot be accounted for by local load gold sources. In other words, it, it doesn't appear to have washed out of the basement and into the basin. Uh, therefore, my hunch is that the gold that we're seeing, albeit it's been tumbled around, it's been moved, shifted, you know, rolled around and, and rounded, uh, is at least in part derived from something that we have yet to find that's further out into the basement. All right, so so those are those are a couple of things. One other thing I would I would say is very important is you don't necessarily like in the Vidvadershin Basin the environment was just right. In other words, that carbon leader was preserved in situ, which is is remarkable. Think about this: a very soft mat of of algae growing on the sea floor, and it was very very carefully preserved between two sandstone horizons. That's Remarkable. Okay, uh, it could be geologically. It could be that what we have here has been completely reworked, completely 
shift it around. That's another possibility. Yeah, it would have to be a very low energy environment, I, I guess, for, for that preservation of the carbon leader in South Africa. But what we might see, look at Beaton's Creek, once we were able to get down into the fresh rock, collect some samples and pick them apart, we started to find pieces of carbon. Uh, might we find something similar at Cararthur? I think there's a good chance. Uh, we've seen some very interesting class or features in, in rock cobbles that are in the conglomerate that suggests there was a you know a biogenic component on on Earth or in the basin uh, as the thing was forming. You mentioned uh, you've taken several bulk samples, I believe you said, or channel samples. Uh, have you reported all of them? Are there still some that you will be reporting sometime soon? You no, know, we've got lots of. Uh, <clears throat> I, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but I would put it in the order of uh, a dozen to twenty, I believe, uh, bulk samples. These are samples anywhere from a few hundred kilos up to a few tons. And they were taken out of trenches uh, that we excavated uh, in the last couple of weeks of the field program, really around December 1st to the, the middle of December. I have an idea that the, uh, the people that are the investors have, you know, when the fine grain issue wasn't there, um, you know, when it became known that, that you couldn't sample this thing easily, uh, as well as I think people started looking at your latest press release, realizing that you're talking about a very thin, maybe 40 centimeters thick gold-bearing area in the conglomerate, at the bottom of the conglomerate, as I understand it. Um, you know, I read <clears throat> somewhere that in South Africa, I think you, you might have mentioned a little while ago, that the gold-bearing reefs sometimes were, you know, between 10 and 200 centimeters thick or something like that. So that also was a very thin, but, but those carbon leaders were incredibly rich, I guess, though, right? Uh, correct. The little carbon leaders uh, were on the order of percentage of gold. Uh -huh. So you know, a two or three millimeter thick carbon meter that's running 3% gold can still uh, carry, you know, basically a mineable face 1.1 meter thick. Uh, on the note of our conglomerate, look, if people Google uh, Discovery Outcrop Johannesburg or Discovery Outcrop Tudvadershan and then look at images, uh, there's pictures taken from the Discovery Outcrop at the park in Johannesburg. And you can see the main leader reef is all of a half a meter thick. All right. So, you know, people say, oh, gee, you know, they're, they're dealing with a thin unit. First of all, the, the basal unit appears like we don't know everything yet, but it appears to float in places. In other words, it, it, sometimes it's resting straight on the basement. Other places, it looks like it's higher in the section. Uh, what, what we also know is that there's gold being derived from the conglomerates above that that's, that uh, horizon. Mm -hmm. There's no way that gold leapt up through this, you know, the ground and, and landed on the soil above it. So there's definitely gold being shed from the conglomerates above the indication we have right now is the third sample, the third bulk of sample that was in the news release ran 1.3 grams. You know, when you were focused on Beaton's Creek several months or a year ago, two years ago even maybe, you mentioned to me that mechanized mining of thin sheets like those at Beaton's Creek or maybe what you're finding here might be a possibility in that, in fact, uh, a similar flat-lying tabular sheet-like structures um, hosting copper were being mined, I think, in, in some place in the world, maybe Poland. Poland, now, yes. Yeah, I realize that this is all very speculative at this point in time because you're just, you know, you're really early on in the exploration process. But might a mechanized mining process, you know, looking into the future, might that be a possibility? I mean, it seems incredible because if you're looking at, you know, 40 centimeters of gold-bearing horizon, if that's what you're looking at, the grading 17 grams or 15 grams, uh, the, di the dilution could be very significant. And it seems to me that's probably another thing that, that hit the stock, you know, when people started looking at that. But, but is, that, is that something that's crossed your mind? 
Uh, look, yes, it is. It's uh, something we've thought about at Beaton's Creek, as you said. Uh, I've had discussions with you. What I would urge people to do is, is once again, get on Google, and they can type in hard rock stopers, long, long wall hard rock stopers. Okay, Caterpillar makes a machine. It's now commercial. Uh, it was in test phase about three or four years ago. Now it's fully commercial. It's a machine that's about 1.4 meters thick or tall, uh, and it's basically a, a, a large uh, device about 50 meters long. You, you put in two drives uh, and a crosscut. You lay up the machine in the crosscut. You, you basically build a machine up in there, and it mines a continuous face as it as it advances forward. These are things that are being developed in real time. Uh, you're seeing more and more of them on the market, and I would say in five or ten years, uh, you know, there will be advances to the point where the, these things are commonplace, just like tunnel borers are now. You know, one question I, I had uh, concerning the Steiner sorting machine, uh, you talked about that in the first bulk sample you put out that had, you know, graded something like two ounces, a little over two ounces per ton, and you talked about the efficiency and that that was, uh, that Steiner sorting machine was working really well. I believe you've had that assembled at the at your current facility, the Nagram facility. Is is that something that's still working out well for you? Okay, so the machine that we used back in July of last year, or this year, excuse me, uh, was uh, in transit. It was actually purchased by a large mining company in Australia, and it was going to one of their mine sites. Nagram happened to get access to it so they could test out our sample. When we, uh, when we saw that we had course gold, we went to the various laboratories around Perth, and we said, who can come up with the best idea of how to assay this stuff? And Nagram stuck their hand up and said, let's try this Steiner machine. We did. It worked fantastic. Uh, we managed to capture over 80% of the gold into a mass of just 2.4%. Uh, that's the kind of efficiency you want to see in, you know, even in a commercial scale. I mean, that's fantastic. So um, let's advance. We, we decided to go that route with our assay. Uh, Nagram purchased their own Steinert machine. It was a different machine than the one that uh, went on to, to the mine in the eastern goldfields. So this machine um, has not, to this point, has not quite performed as well as the previous one. We're seeing mass pulls in the order of 10 to 30 percent. They've done a lot of work to try to figure out how to optimize it, get the mass pulls down to like 2 percent. What I'm, and what I'm saying by that, Jay, just so people know, is that it, it, what we're talking about is concentrating, you know, taking uh -huh. a rock, 100 percent of the rock, and trying to concentrate it down to, say, 2 or 3% of the mass mm -hmm. and still have most of the gold in that rock. Okay, so that's that's our goal. Um, why the, the current Steiner machine does not op operate as efficiently as the previous one, I don't know. We've had many discussions about it. I am not a specialist in that area, but my my impression is the, the current machine is getting too many po uh, false uh, positives. In other words, it's identifying rock particles that, that it thinks has gold but don't. Uh, we are working on it. They have improved, you know, just as in the past couple of weeks before we went on Christmas break. Uh, but we'll continue working on that in the early part of next year. All right. Uh, well, we're, we're just about out of time. There's so much more to ask you. And, and of course, you can get uh, down into the into the weeds, into the detail, uh, those people who are you know have the patience and, and the interest to do so. Just a couple of things I'd like to ask you about. You commented in your press release about the purity of gold, 87 to 100 percent, and and mostly upwards towards the 100 percent. Talk to our listeners about why that's significant, why that's important. Well, it goes back to something I, I tried to convey uh, about 10 minutes ago. Um, mm -hmm. The gold that's of higher purity is simply not 
uh, present in the basement, and meaning the hard rock load deposits. But there's there's very few veins or load deposits in the basement in the area. So trying to account for uh, the fact we have what seems to be a fairly high purity of gold in these nuggets is is very difficult. That gold more closely resembles something I would consider like a Witwatersrand type uh, gold chemistry. Mm-hmm. Okay. And one other thing, uh, you mentioned gold is not super gene. Tell our listeners why that's important. Yeah, look, uh, a lot of people out there, for some reason, think this gold is super gene. Now, let me explain what that means. Okay, when, when you have a gold deposit, when it's first formed, and then it come, it's brought to the surface as erosion and weathering take place. Uh, sometimes the oxidation at surface, that's the interaction with waters and, and the chemistry of the, the near-surface environment, actually perci- uh, remobilize and re-precipitate gold. They, they concentrate it in what we call a super gene deposit. Super meaning superimposed or super uh, mm-hmm. cut down. Okay? The gold that we see at, at, uh, at Comet Well and Purdy's is by no stretch super gene. Everything we've seen, you can look at the photos we put on the internet. They're rounded nuggets. The there is remobilized gold uh, in a halo around the nuggets, but that remobilization probably occurred shortly after the nuggets were buried into the conglomerates, and there was some chemistry, you know, some waters or something that interacted with the nuggets to produce that fine gold. We do not see any supergene component at Carrarthen. That's important. Then, I, just uh, one last question regarding Beaton's Creek. Where does that stand now? Yeah, Beaton's Creek. We we simply exceeded our bandwidth. That's uh, a large reason for why we haven't advanced as quickly. We, sure. we focused on Carrarthen, especially when we started to see some of these uh, these issues pop up. We focused all of our effort. You know, we we're a small, reasonably small team. Uh, we simply did not have the bandwidth bandwidth, but we have uh, accomplished a few things that we'll talk about uh, early next year, in particular uh, some steps that we're taking to to advance the project towards production. All right, finally, in closing, what should investors really be looking forward to in the next several weeks and months to come? What, what, uh, what are the drivers that people should really be focused on? Okay, in the short term, we will have assays from a number of bulk samples. We'll also have the size by analysis that'll tell people, it'll give them some comfort around the potential grade of this deposit. Uh, that's that's in the very very short term, and everybody must fo- fo- or keep in mind that you're focused entirely on Purdy's right now. We're now going to step out to Comet Well and start exploring there. All right, so we're we're moving out of this little tiny sandbox we've been in and starting to look at the bigger picture. Over the next six months, we hope to have similar answers uh, to to what we have at Purdy's at Comet Well. We'll report those as we find them. Uh, There's a lot of gold at Comet Well. We haven't been able to talk about it because the tenements weren't granted. We haven't been able to take rock chip samples and basic work like that. But now we're going to start digging in and and showing the world that uh, the continuity of this thing along strike is quite remarkable, that it is a very large gold system. The Comet Well expands this thing uh, dramatically. Uh, So over the next six months, we hope to, to show people conclusively that this is a viable gold discovery. We will probably have to implement bulk sampling, uh, perhaps bulk mining, uh, in the trial mining phase. Those are things that I can see in the 6 to 12 months or even 18 months uh, out. All right. It should be very, very, very exciting for sure. sure. It's a, one of the most, if not the most interesting gold uh, exploration story that I've followed in the many years that I've been writing a newsletter. It's certainly one that we'll want to keep up with. Uh, so thank you very much, Quentin, for spending time with us. Uh, your time is more valuable than any time since I've learned to know you. I know that. So it is greatly appreciated. And uh, Happy New Year to you and to your family. And uh, Let's uh, let's hope things go really well for you and uh, for all the investors that are hanging in there with uh, Novo Resources. 
Well, that, that is all the time we have this week, folks. We Well, let me take this opportunity to wish you all a happy new year, a happy and prosperous new year, and until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Uranium Energy Corps, NYSE Market, UEC, is a leader in the coming bull market in uranium. With spot uranium up more than 40% in two months, the new bull market is just starting. UEC has the cash, the licensed resources, the permitted processing center, the advanced technology, and the experienced team to lead this market. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting uraniumenergy.com. NYSE Market, UEC. 